namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami. I'm uh, very uh, honored once again to be invited to offer some Dhamma reflections on this uh, occasion of the 17th uh, Tipitaka recitation ceremony. Uh, as people know, this uh, uh, year the Sutta Pitaka is being completed. And the last two books uh, that are being recited uh, of the Kudaka Nikaya, the, the short collections, are the Milinda Panha, the questions of King Milinda, and the Petako Padesa, which means the, the illustration of the baskets. And uh, I, I felt it was very appropriate that uh, the Venerable um, Elder from Vietnam gave a teaching on the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, uh, I, I don't pretend to be very familiar with the Petako Padesa, uh, but uh, it was a, uh, a teaching that is uh, uh, attributed to the Venerable Mahakachana, uh, who was the one who was most gifted at explaining in detail teachings of the Lord Buddha given in brief. And it's a, a summary of the way to read and to understand the Tipitaka and the framework for the Petako Padesa is uh, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so as the second part of this gathering will be reciting the, uh, that particular collection, then there'll be a lot of references to Dukkha, Dukkha Samudaya, Dukkha Nirodha, and uh, uh, Dukkha Nirodha Gamani uh, Patipada, the path leading to the uh, ending of suffering. So I, I thought this evening I would uh, focus on the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, as it's an extremely rich and very multifaceted uh, collection of teachings. Um, it is a, a, a very rich resource indeed, and so I won't try and cover the whole thing. <laughs> but I thought I would focus this evening on the particular set of teachings about Nibbana. Uh, again, as the Venerable was mentioning uh, just a few moments ago, the, Nibbana is the goal of the practice uh, uh, for the, those of us in the southern Buddhist tradition. This is clearly our, our aim in entering into the, uh, uh, the way of practice of the Lord Buddha to realize Nibbana, to uh, say uh, embody that quality of the great peace of, of the heart that comes with full understanding, full uh, enlightenment. This is the goal. So I thought I would select some of the teachings from the Melinda, Melinda Panha that relate particularly to Nibbana. And uh, I, was doing, I was doing some homework <laughs> for this. We don't usually do commentaries on scriptures and do uh, far more. Our tradition is that of spontaneously speaking from uh, our own experience. But uh, I brought my glasses and, and my crib sheet. Uh, since uh, I, I did some uh, uh, reading up on but these particular sections of the Melinda Panha, and um, uh, it's the uh, in the the eighth chapter in this 
Roman edition, you'll find these particular teachings beginning on page 243, and it's sections, uh, uh, I think, 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 8 that relate to Nibbana. So it'll probably be in five or six days' time that you get to that. So uh, King Melinda, for those of you who um, don't know, this was a, 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 a king uh, who ruled in northeast India. He was uh, born about 300 years uh, after the Buddha. So he was born in about uh, 180 uh, before the Common Era. He was born in uh, what is now Bagram in Afghanistan, but he was from Greek ancestry. He was one of the, um, so the, the descendants of the invasion from Alexander, uh, uh, sometimes known as Alexander the Great, but if you come from Iran, he's known as Alexander the Accursed. <laughs> they, they see him differently than the Greeks do. But maybe uh, those of uh, us who were reciting today, reading from the first part of the, the Melinda Panha, you might have noticed the word Yonaka, 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 a few times. The, the word Yonaka means Greek, like Ionian, uh, Ionia, uh, uh, is uh, where the, uh, is related to the, the Pali word Yonaka. So it's describing people who came from that country. So uh, uh, killing King Melinda, uh, then ruled from about 163 before the Common Era to about 150, uh, for about 13 years. And he obviously had a, a very in inquisitive mind. He wanted to understand what was the religion of the area. And the uh, dialogues that uh, uh, form the Melinda Panha are uh, discussions between King Melinda and the Venerable Nagasena, who was obviously a very gifted, wise, and erudite monk um, and a brilliant, brilliant teacher and giver of similes and explanations uh, of which I'll share a few with you uh, th this evening. So uh, the f also the first part of the Melinda Panha, it talks about the pa uh, some of the past life experiences or the origins of King Melinda and Venerable Nagasena uh, and then the, uh, the teachings uh, begin properly. So the um, uh, the, uh, of the teachings I thought I would share with you, uh, as I said, they, uh, they begin uh, about page 243 in this volume, so it's uh, in the, the, um, the version that I was referring to. They are uh, beginning at uh, uh, section 315. And it starts off with King uh, uh, Melinda asking Venerable Nagasena, is it possible to make clear the form, figure, age, dimensions of Nibbana, either by illustration or reason, or by a cause or by a method? To which the Venerable Nagasena says, no, it's impossible. So the king says, well, if, uh, if that's impossible, then surely um, uh, uh, Nibbana can't exist. Because if, if it was real, if it existed, then there must, must have some form, some kind of way of describing it. And uh, so he said, if Nibbana was real, it should be possible. And so then the Venerable Nagasena uh, then responds by saying, you know, great king, um, uh, it, uh, considering the great ocean, is it possible to calculate how much water there is in the, the great ocean? Or how many creatures live in the great ocean? Uh, and 
the uh, the king says no it's, it's impossible it can't it can't be calculated it can't be that there's no way of of describing that um, uh, and then uh, uh, Nagasena says well similarly um, even though the great ocean exists and we we know it's there we can't calculate just how much water is there or how many creatures live within it and then venerable Nagasena goes on to say but even if there was someone with great psychic powers who could tell you exactly how much water there is in the great ocean and exactly how many creatures and of what types uh, that you could do that for the ocean but you couldn't do that for Nibbana <laughs> but it really is impossible so uh, that um, one of the the aspects of Nibbana is it is unimaginable the imagination can't describe what that quality is and so then the and another part of the, the teachings that uh, uh, verse or section uh, 326 then uh, King Melinda says where is Nibbana located and then the Venerable Nagasena responds the region does not exist where Nibbana is located to which the king says well therefore there is no Nibbana and then uh, uh, Venerable Nagasena who's obviously extremely patient as well <laughs> he said uh, well, where is fire located? So we know fire exists, but you can't say where fire is, but if you rub two sticks together anywhere on the planet, then fire will appear. So fire is unlocated, but yet it, it is real. And so then uh, King Melinda was, was convinced by that. So um, they obviously had a, a very rich and interesting uh, set of uh, dialogues with each other. So then, uh, uh, Venerable uh, King uh, King Melinda then asked the Venerable. So, okay, it's unlocated. Um, Nibbana is unlocated. But is there a place where a person should stand in order to realize Nibbana? And you might, uh, and so uh, you might think, well, of course, if Nibbana is unlocated, um, uh, how would it? Uh, what position should someone take? Uh, how would that relate to that? But interestingly. Venerable Nagasena says, yes, there is, and it is in sila, in, in virtue, virtuous conduct. That is where a being must stand. They must position themselves in the mode of sila in order to realize Nibbana. So I felt that was a particularly important uh, point to, to share and explore uh, this evening. Um, the, uh, you'll notice on this beautiful uh, rupa of the Maitreya Bodhisattva, uh, that uh, has been uh, offered and uh, has just arrived here. Uh, as with many, many Buddha images, the base is formed into a lotus flower, the petals of a lotus. And so it's very, very common that a Buddha image is sitting on the lotus. And right there is the symbol of enlightenment uh, based upon virtue. The, the, the lotus flower the, uh, represents purity of conduct, purity of heart. And so the Buddha sitting on the lotus flower is the, the symbol of, of the, uh, the, the seat of enlightenment in the world, uh, the basis of enlightenment in the world. So I feel in, uh, particularly uh, in terms of practical teachings, uh, <laughs> Sister Wangmo was asking for, I feel this is an extremely important area uh, to consider because uh, both here in India and in the Western world, uh, frequently uh, people uh, are interested in 
uh, enlightenment. They want to uh, they want to deal with their problems. They have a we have an intuition that liberation is possible, enlightenment is possible, and so we uh, find various resources. We read books or watch uh, films or uh, or dhamma talks on YouTube of of gurus, or we go to meetings and uh, retreats and teachings, and there are many, many different uh, spiritual teachings that promise enlightenment and freedom and a great, uh, say, peace of heart, and uh, and some, uh, uh, very commonly, the ones that are, are interesting or are popular are ones that involve a lot of fun <laughs> and, and not much restraint, uh, along with the enlightenment. So sex, drugs, rock and roll, and enlightenment is in the West. That's how you put it. And, uh, but uh, uh, this is, I feel, a, a big issue, not just in the West, but uh, in, uh, uh, in Asia as well. Because uh, uh, speaking as one who speaks a lot, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's easy to talk. It's easy to present a philosophy or an idea, uh, a, a set of methodologies. And it can be really, you can be really convincing. You can present a, a program, a philosophy, and it all holds together very logically. It can be very attractive. You can tell a great story, and people say, oh, wow, how marvelous, how wonderful. And the um, appeal can be great, or perhaps the teacher, the person in the teaching seat has a lot of charisma. They're very powerful personality, or they speak very well. They tell really good stories. <laughs> and, uh, uh, or maybe they even have some, some shakti. <laughs> and can kind of zap, zap you and think, oh my goodness, I just sat near Guruji and I felt this tingling in my forehead. Um, and so, wow, he must be totally enlightened. And so then, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the lack of foundation in sila, can, even though, uh, and I'm speaking in very general terms, those methods of, of, of spiritual practice and training, they, they can have some kind of a value and sometimes the insights that are gained in contact with such teachers and teachings can be valuable, valuable but they, get, uh, they can get so easily mixed up with unskillful behavior, with behavior that's abusive of other people's lives, their property, their bodies, uh, abusive of people's resources, taking advantage, sometimes these uh, these very powerful teachers, uh, they um, promise enlightenment, but it costs a lot of, uh, a lot of dollars, <laughs> or rupees, <laughs> or euros and pounds, that uh, it comes uh, with a great expense. And so that uh, the, uh, the foundation of, uh, of Buddha Dhamma in virtue, I feel this is something that is extremely important to, to bear in mind. Uh, I lived in California, for about 15, 20 years, so there's this very uh, large range of inspiring and interesting, fascinating gurus and teachers, um, some of whom I, I met. And uh, I found that it was really the ones who had a, a foundation in virtue, who are really honest, straightforward, they weren't trying to take advantage of the people who drew close to them, they were uh, sincerely uh, looking to benefit the people around them and also uh, there was a high quality of, of uh, restraint and honesty in speech and in uh, b uh, social behavior, sexual uh, restraint in terms of sexual relations. And uh, 
th those people were, uh, I, I found, very um, inspiring and lovely to be around. Whether they were Buddhists or Hindus or had no particular uh, spiritual uh, affiliation, uh, I, I was always uh, glad and impressed to be around such people. But there's also quite a, a number, uh, quite a range of those who behave very unskillfully. <laughs> and so that uh, I, I feel it's very uh, helpful and particularly clear in the, in the Pali teachings that uh, enlightenment involves uh, moral behavior. That you can't really divide sammasati, right mindfulness, from, uh, some, from sila, from samavacha, samma kamanto, samma jivo, from right speech, right action, right livelihood. They, they're a part of a unit. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of, uh, of mindfulness trainings, not just not just t talking in terms of unscrupulous gurus, <laughs> but just the, the mindfulness trainings that are around the world that are presented free from any kind of ethical uh, element. That uh, there's no sense of, of uh, guidance about how one should behave in terms of speech and action. And I feel that that's a, that's a sadness. And I've had a number of dialogues with people who are very prominent teachers of mindfulness, people like John Kabat-Zinn and uh, others uh, who are very active and, and do a great deal of good in the world. But I do feel that it's uh, one of the, the things that are lacking in the, the presentation of mindfulness programs in the world, that the element of sila, just simply uh, being honest in your speech, being restrained in your, in your behavior, uh, being harmless um, and uh, refraining from intoxicants, this, that kind of encouragement as part of mindfulness training would be an as a conscious uh, and uh, say uh, promoted part of mindfulness practices would be a great blessing for individuals and for society. And yesterday we were asking about uh, Buddhism's role in terms of world peace. So my own little uh, program or, or a wish is to introduce the sila element into the many uh, popular and very useful mindfulness trainings around the world. There's a couple of teachings, not just in the Melinda Panha, um, that I, I like to share on, on this, uh, this respect, where it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, uh, Book of the Nines, uh, suttas number seven and eight in the, the Book of the Nines. And the Buddha is talking to two different wanderers, different uh, uh, sannyasins that he's met. One is called Suttava and the other is called Sajja. And they're asking about the nature of, uh, of enlightenment or the behavior of an enlightened person. And in these little dialogues, the Buddha says uh, to, to Suttava, he says, uh, one who is enlightened, an arahant, cannot deliberately take the life of another living being. It's impossible. They can't do it. Like the, the hand cannot move to, to squash the mosquito. It, 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 the action can't be taken. It's not forbidden as a sort of behavior that's controlled. It's like, no, the hand won't, won't move to deliberately take life. And uh, an arahant cannot take what is not given. Uh, an arahant cannot steal. Uh, it's in their, their uh, intrinsic nature, the enlightened mind can't take what is not given. Can't, uh, say, uh, abuse the, the sense of ownership that people have for property. Uh, an enlightened being is completely uninterested in any kind of sexual activity. Uh, the enlightened being will not engage in sexual activity. 
that that's intrinsic to the uh, the state of enlightenment is is a, a disengagement with any kind of sexual behavior with any other being and, and I, I realize that uh, in the northern Buddhist tradition there's quite a number of enlightened yogis who are family people so I, I, there's a bit of a disparity uh, I recognize there but this is the as it says in the Pali Canon that's uh, uh, the I'm just sharing the words of the Lord Buddha in this respect um, that an enlightened being w uh, is unable to engage in any kind of sexual behavior. It's just not interesting uh, and not, uh, not appealing in, in any way, shape or form. Uh, an enlightened being cannot tell a lie. The tongue cannot form the words of an untruth. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, uh, so th those of you who are just following the uh, the ceremony of the five precepts, the dragon dancers taking the five precepts. So those uh, those first uh, four match uh, quite closely. The, the third one, the, the venerable mis mistook and, did, and said Abramacharya <laughs> accidentally and then stopped himself. That's the precept for celibacy. So that rather than the dragon dancers taking on celibacy, uh, that uh, taking on the five precepts of of restraint uh, with and proper behavior with respect to sexual uh, uh, sexual conduct uh, the so the the first four match the first four of the eight precepts the the third one being abrahmacharya but instead of the fifth precept about uh, uh, intoxicants very interestingly when the buddha talks to uh, to these two wanderers to suttava and sajja he says uh, 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 an enlightened being cannot lay up a store. They won't keep things for, t for tomorrow. They won't sort of take uh, the, the food that's been given to them and keep it or, or have a, an extra pair of socks or <laughs> uh, to, uh, to be ready to live with what the day offers, what comes naturally, what appears, and then tomorrow uh, let it take care of itself. So and that's an interesting theme to contemplate. Uh, I find that uh, uh, one who is enlightened is not doing a lot of planning for, for tomorrow, but just living fully uh, for today. So that uh, I feel that those are helpful teachings to understand that, uh, so in a way, an arahant is not practicing restraint. It's the natural disposition of their own pure heart is that they're not restraining themselves to not kill uh, living beings like mosquitoes or, or, uh, or uh, an ant, um, but rather there's nothing in them that could do that. They're not restraining themselves from telling a lie. There's nothing in them that could deliberately lie. And so I feel that's, that's a helpful uh, understanding of how sila uh, and, the, and enlightenment, the realization of Nibbana work together. Uh, a last little uh, piece I'll, I'll share on that is um, when the, the Buddha established the eight precepts the, on the moon days uh, to, to, uh, for, uh, to establish a training form or a form of, of intensified spiritual practice for the lay community. Uh, again, the Buddha drew upon the nature of the enlightened mind. Um, and again, this, you can find this, uh, the Upozata Sutta. It's in, the, well, it's in a number of places, but you can find it in the Book of the Threes in the Anguttara Nikaya, Sutta number 70. And uh, the Buddha's uh, reflecting, he said, you know, all their lives, arahants never, never deliberately take the life of another living being. 
uh, wouldn't it be useful on the moon days, on the uposita, for the lay people to adopt this behavior, then they will be living as the arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. And then similarly for uh, not, not taking what is not given, uh, a, not engaging in sexual activity, uh, not lying, not using intoxicants, and then the last three, uh, uh, not eating at, uh, only eating in one time of the day, not seeking entertainment and distraction and adornment, and then using a simple sleeping place thing. This is the be natural behavior of the arahants, that they only eat in one part of the day. They never seek distraction or entertainment. They never use intoxicants. And by adopting those behaviors, then the lay person is living as the arahants do. And then uh, uh, it's for the long-lasting welfare and happiness, not just because it's some kind of intrinsic good karma, but rather by adopting that behavior, then you see the good effects, not having told a lie all day. You don't have to regret having told a lie, not having engaged in sexual activity, not flirting with people or engaging with others. There's a peacefulness that comes with that, not, uh, not killing anything. You don't have any regret. There's no remorse for having taken the life of another living being. And so that, uh, and, and so forth. That uh, you can see, you can know, you can feel for yourself the benefits of that uh, restrained behavior. So then, adopting the behavior helps you to, in a way, recognize your own pure heart's uh, inclination. That uh, it's ab you're able to tap into your own pure heart, the the purest and most, uh, say, noble uh, uh, inclinations of your own jitta and then recognize, well, this is really good. I like to feel this way. Isn't it wonderful to, to, to uh, not uh, feel remorse? Is it, isn't it nice to be able to meditate in the evening without a full stomach? <sighs> so we can see the benefits of that for ourselves. So, to continue. So, to continue with the other teachings from the Melinda Panha, So then, uh, 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 in an er another earlier section of this same group in uh, of, uh, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 of uh, those sections of uh, chapter 8, and in my uh, uh, copy, my uh, source of the Melinda Panha uh, sections, or verses 315 to 322. So then uh, the king says, so... Uh, I recognize that Nibbana is a complete freedom from suffering. It is unalloyed bliss, absolutely pure bliss. Um, but are there any other qualities that Nibbana has? Is, uh, are, there, are there ways to describe those qualities? And, um, and, uh, and the Venerable Nagasena goes into this marvelous list of 15 different uh, similes for the qualities of Nibbana. So uh, I thought I would share these with you. Uh, uh. Firstly, a lotus is untouched by water. Nibbana is untouched by the defilements, by kilesa. Just as water is cool and quenches fever, Nibbana quenches the fever of the kilesas, the defilements. Just as water subdues thirst, Nibbana subdues the thirst of uh, the three kinds of desire, 
kamatanha, sense desire, bhavatanha, the desire to become, and vibhavatanha, the desire to get rid of. And I was very interested to listen to the Venerable's explanations about the three kinds of desire. Um, uh, my own teacher, Ajahn Sumato, uh, generally focused on a much more close-to-home qualities. Uh, sense desires uh, uh, is sort of d the desire for pleasant sensual experiences. But Bhavatanha, uh, he would bring much more into our everyday uh, scope of our everyday life. So Bhavatanha is getting lost in ambition, wanting to be someone, wanting to be recognized, wanting to, to uh, have some kind of identified being. Uh, the habit of the mind of, of getting lost in expectations, leaning into the next thing. So far more a natural everyday thing, not so much about wanting to be reborn in the in high states of absorption, but bhava, the desire to become. I want to be something, I want to be somebody, or I am somebody. <laughs> that I am this person, you know, don't you know who I am? That, uh, that's Bhavatanha plus plus, I would say, those of us who've had that experience. And then Vibhavatanha, again, uh, Ajahn Sumedha would explain in a much more relatable, tangible way as the wanting to not feel, you know, those of us who've drunk a lot of alcohol in the past or sought d distraction or just slept a lot, um, just zoning out. Vibhavatanha is the desire to not feel, to switch off, to, to be annihilated, to just uh, zone out, to disconnect. And, um, so these are, are I'm not um, say, uh, disagreeing, I'm not disagreeing with uh, the Venerable who was speaking earlier, but these are other aspects of these three kinds of fever, these three kinds of, of desire that uh, uh, are, say, much more uh, familiar to us, the, the oh, I've had enough, oh, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm done, Vibhavatanha, <laughs> like, oh, yes, now I'm getting somewhere, Bhavatanha, <laughs> these are familiar states, particularly in terms of meditation, that, uh, but that's a, a theme for a whole Dhamma talk in, in itself. So to continue, the medicine is the refuge of beings uh, suffering from being poisoned, Nibbana is the refuge of beings poisoned by the defilements, by kilesa. Uh, medicine um, puts an end to all ills, physiological, physical ills. Nibbana puts an end to all dukkha. Just as the ocean is vast and not filled up by the rivers that flow into it, uh, nibba, uh, Nibbana is measureless, endless, and uh, it can't be... Uh, it can't be reckoned in terms of space or dimensions um, and it can't be filled up by all the all of the beings who realize Nibbana do not fill it up so there's no room for any more enlightened beings. Uh, the ocean blossoms with flowers of waves. Nibbana blossoms with the flowers of purity, of knowledge and of deliverance. Just as food is the support of life, Nibbana is the support of life because uh, it destroys old age, uh, uh, sickness and death. F just as food is a source of beauty, a Nibbana is a source of beauty, uh, the beauty of sila, uh, of virtue. Just as space is not produced, doesn't age, doesn't die, cannot be handled, can't, space can't be carried off by thieves, it rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, uh, and offers no obstacles, 
and is endless, yeah, so too Nibbana is not produced, it doesn't age, doesn't die, cannot be handled, cannot be carried off by thieves, it rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble ones and presents no obstacles and is endless. Then just as the wish-fulfilling gem, the Jintamani, uh, brings a smile of satisfaction, so too Nibbana brings a smile of satisfaction. This is why also uh, almost every Buddha Rupa that you will see, there's a gentle smile, the, the, uh, the, there's, uh, uh, the natural expression of Buddhas is that of, uh, of, uh, of delight, of enjoyment. Uh, so the smile of satisfaction. Uh, just a, and then the last ones are about mountain peaks. Just as a mountain peak is lofty, Nibbana is also lofty, high up. Just as a mountain peak is immovable, Nibbana is immovable. Just as a mountain peak is difficult to ascend, Nibbana is also difficult to ascend. And last one, just as seeds do not germinate on the mountain peak, so too the seeds of Kilesa, of the defilements, do not germinate in Nibbana. So there's a lot there. <laughs> Uh, there's a, a great deal uh, there, um, but uh, I, I, again, I wanted to share with you some of the, the richness of the of the Just as I wanted to share with you some of the uh, the material that we're reciting, I'm not sure what the other sound is coming from, but So the last of the, the teachings from the, the text I thought I would share with you is uh, verse number 323. It begins in that, this section. The Nibbana is neither past, future, or present. Uh, it is neither produced, nor not produced, nor to be produced. Yet it is real and may be realized. So this is about uh, uh, also about um, going back to uh, how Nibbana is not a place. It, that uh, you, uh, even though it's you can't say where Nibbana is, still it is real. So I thought uh, I would talk a little bit more about that. You know, Nibbana is not a place; it's unlocated. Um, and uh, I realize this is a little bit of a, a subtle aspect of the the teachings, but one that I feel is is very important and something that was very central to our, our great master, the late the Venerable Ajahn Chah, uh, would uh, focus upon in his teaching, whether to lay people or to monastics. And uh, when, uh, in, from a scripture, to have a, you say, Venerable Nagasena say, Nibbana is not a place, uh, it, uh, and that we can hear it in the teaching. And uh, I think yesterday I was saying how that. Uh, we can have strange ideas about Nibbana that it's some kind of super heaven somewhere off somewhere else or it's some kind of, of uh, a philosophical uh, idea. We have a philosophical idea about, about Nibbana. 
But uh, uh, the, uh, along with the teaching that Ajahn Chah gave uh, that Nibbana is the reality of non-grasping, there were other ways that he approached uh, uh, this area of, uh, of understanding and help, try to help people to really put the teachings into practice and, and make a difference in one's life. So in terms of, of our, our habitual ways of thinking, for most people, we think in terms of self-view. I am this person. Yeah, today is December the 3rd. It's just after five past eight in the evening. We're in Bodhgaya. We're under the sacred Bodhi tree. I'm sitting here talking to you. You're there listening to me, I hope. <laughs> the, uh, and that's, time is passing. I'm here, you're there. And we take this, these... these um, uh, perceptions to be absolute realities and so as long as the mind takes three-dimensional space time and individuality as absolute truths the realization of Nibbana is impossible we might be virtuous that's the where we're standing we're standing in the right place <laughs> maybe uh, but if there is that sense of I am the body I'm the personality I exist here this is my name, this is how old I am, uh, this is my nationality, and my, uh, this is my monastery, my teacher, my allegiance. If that is all taken to be absolutely true, liberation is impossible. Self-view is the first of the fetters, the sanyojana. So that's the first obstacle to enlightenment, is that I am the body, I am the personality, sakayaditi. So, uh, one of the ways that uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah tried to help people to uh, see that habit of self-view was to uh, get them to reflect upon non-locality, or he would call it no abiding. And I, I'm hoping that most people can understand the English that I'm using. And it's all been recorded, and you know nowadays there's lots of amenities to bring translations. So I hope this all gets through well enough. So uh, when people uh, would come to visit uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah, he, he liked to test people out or to get people thinking, to not just people, oh, people to come along and pay respects and make some offerings and then go away. He would like to engage with people, rather like King Melinda and Nagasena, he liked to get a, a dialogue going. So sometimes when people would come to visit, he'd say, if you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't stand still, where do you go? Uh, people will say, oh, do you climb a tree? <laughs> Can, you know, uh, dig a hole? <laughs> go sideways? No, you can't go sideways. You can't dig a hole. There aren't any trees and there are no balloons either. You know. so, so you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't go up, you can't go down, you can't go sideways. Where can you go? And he would uh, 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 act in a kind of playful dialogue. He would, he would, he would uh, act on this uh, initiative to get people talking, to get people thinking. And eventually, uh, most people would give up and say, Lumpur, I, I don't understand. <laughs> Please explain. Please explain. And, uh, and he would say, uh, uh, <laughs> that's not what he would say. But <laughs> he would... Uh, he would say, as long as we conceive reality in terms of self and time and location, then liberation is impossible. It's only if you let go 
of self-view, you let go of time, uh, you let go of place. The Dhamma is akaliko, it's timeless. Uh, the Dhamma ha is not located, it is no place. There's no where you will find the Dhamma begins and, uh, and uh, the Dhamma is found up to this point and not found beyond it. Location doesn't apply in, uh, in, the, in the realm of the mind. If you think about it, space and, and place only applies in the world of three-dimensional space, in the world of Rupa Kanda. The Nama Kandas don't really have any relationship to space. I could say, where does, where does my Sanya end and yours begin? doesn't apply. Yeah, we can say, oh, I'm here, the dog is there, the camera is there, yeah, the, the, the sacred Bodhi tree is behind me. Uh, in, a, in the realm of Rupakanda, yes, position, place applies. But in the realm of mind, where is the mind? Where does not apply? So this is the kind of thing that Lumpur Chao was trying to get people to see, that only if you let go of the identification with, with personality, with time, with place, uh, uh, then, then freedom is possible. The, the very last advice that he gave to Venerable Ajahn Sumato, when uh, he, uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah knew his health was getting very poor, he was decaying quite rapidly, uh, and he uh, sent a letter to, uh, to Ajahn Sumato in the summer of 1981. Uh, I, was, um, the, uh, I, I was there when he received it at Chitta Viveka Monastery in, in Sussex in England. And uh, the, um, he was very surprised to get this letter because uh, Ajahn Chah had never written to him before. And, uh, and he said, uh, in this letter, it was very brief, um, and it was uh, one of the Western monks had taken dictation from Ajahn Chah. And it began by saying, you're never going to believe this Ajahn Sumedho, but Lumpur had me take dictation this morning. So, <laughs> so this is his message. And he said, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building Paramita. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumato is your place of non-abiding. So in these teachings of non-locality, that Nibbana is not a place, uh, I feel it's, that was the very last message from Ajahn Chah to his chief Western disciple. And you'd think, well, my life is fading, my health is going, I've got a, a, a little opportunity to send some instructions to my beloved and, and trusted uh, eldest son in the, off in the, the, doing his pioneer work in a new land and you'd think he'd come up with a long list of do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that but this was the one instruction the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards nor in moving backwards nor in standing still this is your place of non-abiding so as soon as the mind lets go does not cling to identity to our plans, our opinions, our emotions, our moods, uh, our preferences, uh, to the place where we are, to our name, to our age, to our nationality, to our status. Um, uh, all of these things, uh, if the mind lets go of those, that quality of grasping, then there is
there is uh, that that's the way to uh, embody buddha dhamma to genuinely not just hear dhamma or practice dhamma uh, to awaken to dhamma but to uh, to embody the dhamma and again venerable ajahn chah would talk in this way he'd say there's hearing dhamma understanding dhamma practicing dhamma realizing dhamma but at the end of the process is being dhamma and the the that embodiment of that reality that's the potential that we all have but if it's a oh i'm going to be dhamma <laughs> that's what i am the the real me is the dhamma then it Incredible India. <laughs> so, the, uh, so there, that letting go, there's a wakefulness. The mind is awake, it's aware, and it knows the personal. It knows the body, knows the personality, knows our lists of things to do. It knows our, our responsibilities, our schedules. You know, evening of the third, 7.30, Dhamma talk. <laughs> I, I sit on about 20 different committees. So... Uh, I'm a I'm a Buddhist monk, but I have a lot of time spent in in uh, reading agendas and minutes, <laughs> and sitting in board me in meetings with different people. But if we as, if we take this principle to heart, letting go of identity, of uh, attachment to the body, the personality, uh, our story, our opinions, our emotions, our loves, our hates. Uh, we let go of all of those bhavas, those, those becomings, those uh, ways that the mind likes to, to take root, then we do indeed uh, uh, realize that great quality of Nibbāna. There is the realization and embodiment of Nibbāna. The heart knows its own nature as Dhamma and uh, the result of that realization is the great peace uh, of Nibbāna. Another little scriptural teaching clock is behind me <laughs> just to keep an eye on the time uh, another of the scriptural teachings that I like to quote that I feel is very very relevant in this uh, because people then uh, it's natural to, th to then ask well um, if I'm not the body I'm not the personality I'm not this sense of, of I what, what am I yeah. <laughs> something something is real there's definitely some reality here at the center, but if I'm not a woman, I'm not a man, I'm not old, I'm not young, I'm not British, not American, not, yeah, not Indian, not a human, what am I? Uh, and so that if our, our reference point is the ego, then that's a disaster. It's like, uh, you know, we feel like I, I'm, I'm annihilated, I don't exist, or I'm, I'm nothing. And if we take the ego and self-view as the, the, the measure or the, the, the reference point, then that, that loss of, of ego, that emptiness, feels like a, a disaster. It's, it's painful, it's shocking, it's disorienting. And, and I remember when I was a teenager, I had a, a, an experience of that, and it was very, very disturbing. Like looking in a mirror, seeing my face, and uh, it was my face, but... There was no me in it. It was uh, hard to describe, but it was uh, it, there was no way I could get myself into that that image that was looking out from the mirror. And so if I'm not that, then what am I? <laughs> ah! 
so I was a I was a student uh, at that time, 19 years old, and and I was just very very shaken, very confused. When I came across the Buddha's teaching a couple of years later, then the uh, then I realized, oh, <laughs> that was actually quite good. <laughs> Little did I know. So if we don't take the ego and self view as a reference point, then when the heart lets go of those those uh, standard ways of identifying who and what we are, then what remains is the brightness of, of awareness, of that awakened, aware quality of the jitta. Uh, and that, uh, the word vijja, uh, uh, opposite of avijja, ignorance, vijja is a good Pali word to use for that, for that awakened, aware quality. Uh, the teaching I, I like to quote in this respect is from the, the disc, another dialogue, not between uh, King Melinda and Nagasena, but between the, the Lord Buddha and Vachagota, who uh, was, uh, like King Melinda, was a, a curious um, uh, and lively-minded person. He liked to come to the Buddha and ask many, many questions and had as many interesting and lively dialogues between the Lord Buddha and Vachagota. Uh, and uh, in one of these dialogues, Vanchagota uh, asks the Buddha, what happens to an enlightened being at the end of their life when the body dies? Where, uh, where do they reappear? And the Buddha says, reappear does not apply, Vacha. Then Vanchagota says, well, do they not reappear? And the Buddha replies, does not reappear, that doesn't apply either. And then being an Indian philosopher, Vanchagota then Okay, do they both reappear and not reappear? The Buddha said, no, both, uh, both reappear and not reappear, that doesn't apply. And then the fourth one, <laughs> do they neither reappear nor not reappear? So they must cover every angle. <laughs> but every possibility seems to have been covered. And the Buddha said, that doesn't apply either. And so Vachagota says, I'm confused, Venerable Sir, because one of these possibilities must represent the reality. And the Buddha says, no, because the way you ask the question presumes a reality that does not exist. So, Vacha, if we had a little fire burning here made of grass and sticks, and the fire went out, and I asked you the question, Vacha, where did the fire go? North, south, east, or west? What would you say? He said, well, I'd say the question doesn't apply, sir, because it didn't go in any direction, it just went out. Exactly. <laughs> Vacha. So the, uh, uh, the, the, you're, asking, you're asking the question in a way that presumes a reality that doesn't exist. Then he comes on to the part of the teaching that I particularly want to share with uh, everyone this evening. So then the Buddha says, the Tathagata, and that the word Tathagata is a word it's seemingly the Buddha invented to refer to himself. It literally means thus come or thus gone. That gone to suchness or come to suchness. So, and we can take the word Tathagata in this respect to represent the enlightened mind. And I would say whether it refers to the Lord Buddha as an individual who walked and talked 2,600 years ago or the enlightened mind that is the fundamental nature of, of all these jittas uh, gathered here, that, uh, that potential uh, of enlightenment is there in every jitta, I would say. So the awake, aware quality of the heart, the jitta. 
then the, the, the Buddha explains, says, uh, that material form whereby one who is trying to describe the Tathagata would describe him, that's been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and is no more subject to arising in the future. That feeling, the Vedana, uh, perception, sanya, sankhara, mental formations, vijnana, sense consciousness, discriminative consciousness, that one uh, would use or would refer to, to to describe the Tathagata, those have all been cut off, made like a palm stump, the bridge is down, there's no connection, <laughs> there's, there is, uh, that has all been completely let go of. Uh, the five khandas, uh, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, again as the Venerable was describing, they've all been completely let go of. There's no identification or attachment for the, by the Tathagata for the five khandas. Uh, and then he goes on to say that Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned, from being measured in terms of those five khandas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So this is very potent teaching to me, and I, I feel this is really the heart of vipassana meditation, insight meditation practice. That uh, again, the the uh, former president uh, of India was speaking uh, so eloquently about yesterday. The heart of vipassana is establishing that awakened awareness that knows the five khandas, sees them arising and passing away, and uh, which has completely let go of them. The bridge is down, there's no connection, cut off like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and no longer subject to arising in the future. So, but in that last part of the, the Buddha's comments, he says, the Tathagata, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So there's a quality there, and that, you know, this is a dialogue between the, the Buddha and Vachagota. They're sitting face to face, <laughs> talking to each other. And so he's saying that the Tathagata has completely let go of any identification with the five khandas. But there is this. There is a quality, there's a presence uh, of, of that suchness that is apparent, that is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So that um, uh, I feel is a very beautiful, poetic and accurate way of representing the quality of awareness. Again, comparing it to the ocean, as Venerable Nagasena does in those dialogues, that when we stand by the seashore, the, the, the sense of being by the sea is, is vast, as it goes off to the horizon and disappears beyond our vision. There's a sense of power, it's, in, it's enormous, and there's this movement of the water. Uh, there's the, the sense of mystery. You can't see all the beings underneath the surface. So the, the Lord Buddha using that image of he, the, the, the nature of the Tathagata, the nature of the awake citta, the awake aware quality of the heart, is, is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So that that when the heart is free of obscurations, when it, it is fully awake and aware, that which knows the person, uh, again, uh, not to encourage us to just identify with the, I am immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean, that's the real me, <laughs> then it's just a, an idea that we're hanging on to. The practice of vipassana, and the training of the heart, is about 
embodying that quality of awareness that is indeed vast, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. It's not just the words that refer to it, but it is that quality. Like the word water is not water. It's a word. <laughs> this stuff in this bottle, this, this is water. The word water is not water. It's a word. So to say unfathomable, immeasurable, like the great ocean, those are words. But they're referring to that quality of the citta. And maybe one last thing to share on this that I, I, I think is, is interesting and again relates to non-locality or that non-abiding. So the, those words of Venerable Ajahn Chah when he says you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still, it's uh, closely related to a passage from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Lord Buddha in chapter 8 uh, of the Udana, where he, the Buddha says, there is that ayatana, that sphere of being, where there is no sun, no moon, no stars, no coming, no going, no standing still, no dying, no reappearance. Um, and this, I tell you, is the end of suffering. That's a paraphrase. Uh, and so that uh, um, in that, um, that passage that uh, uh, the, the Buddha is talking about, the, the, the unconditioned, there is that ayatana, uh, there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed. In a, another sutta very close by, again in chapter 8 of the Udana, uh, if there was not the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, then liberation from the, the form, the originated, the created, the born would not be possible. But because there is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, therefore liberation from the created, the formed, the, the born the condition is possible. So in those teachings, the, the, the word to be uh, that the Buddha uses, that there is the unborn, atti bhikkhuwe ajatang abhutang akatang asankatang, that the, the verb atti is used to refer to that quality of being that is timeless, that is not connected with birth and death. And uh, so when we say today is is the 3rd of December, that is, you'd use the verb hoti, the Pali verb hoti, uh, or I am a human being, manusosi, are you a human being? Uh, that is, the, the verb hoti is, to re, is used to refer to that quality of being. But when it's a timeless quality and a transcendent quality, there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed. The verb ati is used. So there's a different uh, mode of expression that is used to refer to this transcendent quality. And uh, I would say that if we are, um, say, taking these teachings that we find in the Melinda Panha and these other places in the Pali Canon, and then we take the trouble to sit down, to sit, walk, meditate, spend time in holy places like uh, here at the, under the sacred Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And we apply ourselves to meditation, particularly developing the wisdom that comes with, with uh, vipassana meditation. Then these are not just words. These are ways that our lives can be transformed. We can really see what we are in a different way. <laughs> the change of view can go from a self-centered perspective to a Dhamma-centered perspective. And that makes all the difference in the world, I would suggest. So.
So I offer these words for consideration, and we have a bit of time for some questions and some dialogue. Uh, I think there's a microphone that can move around. Thank you, Venerable. Um, this is a great opportunity for people to ask questions. Um, I'd like to turn it first to the Venerable Monastics, if there are any questions. Pante, uh, um, I would like you to repeat the sentence that Atancha sent to Achan Sumeto in the letter, because I couldn't uh, hear clearly the whole sentence. Okay. So could you please repeat? Um, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumeto is your place of non-abiding. That's the whole thing. Are there any other questions here from the monastic community? If not, then I will turn to the lay community. There's a hand over here. Oh, so sorry. Lay, yeah. You're welcome to come here. Uh, thank you so much for your wisdom. And uh, I would like to know if uh, interdependence is uh, connected with all the, the aspects that you talked about. Interdependence. Mm -hmm. Interdependence. Well, um, <laughs> depends a little bit what you mean uh, in, with respect to that. The um, one of the um, that, uh, say, the aspects of the experiential world is that things are causally related. Cause and effect is one of the, the uh, say, um, uh, the, the unshakable laws or the established laws of nature, that things function according to cause and effect. So things are dependent upon each other. They, they interact, they interrelate. And so that... Um, that uh, so interdependence is uh, one of the uh, say principles of nature, of the natural order as we experience it in the world of form and the world of mind, and the conditioned realm of thinking and imagination, emotions and and mind states. But uh, nibbana, or the uh, the unconditioned, then that's beyond cause and effect. And one of the ways, that, uh, another of the ways that Venerable Ajahn Chah would talk about non-abiding, uh, the place of non-abiding, he'd say it's uh, outside of cause and above effect. Nork hate nil porn. And that's actually the title of, of one of his books in the Thai language. So that um, in the, in the, in the, if you like, in the ayatana, in the, in the, the domain of the of unconditioned, uh, of the the transcendent Dhamma, interdependence doesn't apply because 
the cause and effect doesn't apply. Past and future don't apply. Uh, here and there doesn't apply. So that uh, all of our usual reference points fall, fall away. So interdependence, interrelatedness, I would say, is very much a, an aspect of the uh, conditioned realm, the, the world of, that we experience through the senses. But in terms of, of, uh, of the unconditioned, then it doesn't apply. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think Richard, you might have a question. You're coming. He's forward. striding purposely forward. <laughs> I know he always has a good question. <laughs> so, Bhante, um, it's interesting. There's a kind of uh, tension between mindfulness and shila, which you did explain, um, because an arhant has shila without any intention. They just are shila. Um, and I suppose you could say that if you perfect your mindfulness, you perfect your shila. Mm -hmm. So the question really is, why does shila um, enhance mindfulness? Because in a way, because Sheila involves effort, it is um, a conditioning of the absolute nature, and so takes you away from it. Um, well, uh, if if all effort was uh, took you away from the absolute reality, right effort couldn't be part of the Eightfold Path. Yes. Samawayamo. So uh, it, there is possible to make effort completely free of self-view. And that's, uh, and the Buddha was totally enlightened. He put a lot of effort into spreading the Dhamma throughout Northeast India and everywhere. So, um, I would say that, uh, in a way, the 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 principle is embodied in those words of the Buddha establishing the oppositor, the 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 Munday observance. Like, if they act in this way, then that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. If you refrain from lying and and, and killing and uh, if you act in a way that's restrained, then uh, again, it's not just because of some uh, automatic creation of good karma, but rather, if you don't tell a lie all day, then your mind is 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 regretting any lies that you've told in the evening. It's a very practical relationship. If you don't do um, unskillful things, you don't have to regret having done them. It's a very basic kind of psychology. <laughs> if you and so that it's a. Um, uh, uh, by seeing the good results of that behavior, then it, it creates a positive feedback loop. That's the, the principle of it. And so the, um, they are chosen behaviors initially, just as showing up to uh, the Sri the, the, uh, Mahabodhi Temple at Bodhgaya, joining in with this program, is, it's a choice. But that's part of, the, I feel, of the genius of the Buddha is he established these um, uh, you know, choices that are, and possibilities based very much on ordinary self-centered thinking. Like, you know, I want this, this is going to be good for me, I will go. And then having gone, the, the, having used that, that um, pattern of conditioning, it can create the, the environment whereby the mind can awaken to the unconditioned. So that... Uh, uh, he called the Eightfold Path the karma that leads to the end of karma. 
the action that leads to the end of action. So, yeah, it's choices, and it can be, uh, again, as the Venerable was speaking earlier, it can be the, the mundane eightfold path. Yeah, it can be based, wrapped up in self-view and personal wishes, but the extraordinary chemistry of it is that, uh, uh, that uh, say, you can start off with those self-centered uh, and, and mundane attitudes, but they create the conditions where the supramundane or the transcendent can more easily be realized. Well, in the spirit of Vajragotha, how, how does creating good karma like that, good karma, take you beyond karma? Why should it do that? Uh, well, because uh, <clears throat> the more that you create good karma, then the, the more that the, there's a, a sense of self-respect, there's an ease, the body relaxes, the mind relaxes, there's a, a quality of contentment. And the, the Buddha said, the mind that, uh, one whose mind is content, they don't need to think, may I establish samadhi, it's natural for one who is content, who has sukha, for their mind to be concentrated. One whose mind is concentrated, they don't need to think, may knowledge and vision of the way things are arise. It's natural, it's in accordance with nature that one whose mind is concentrated, knowledge and vision of the way things are will arise. One who's, uh, in whom knowledge and vision has arisen, there's no need for them to think, may I let go and be, uh, and be detached. Uh, because for one in whom there is knowledge and vision of the way things are, then the heart naturally becomes dispassionate, detached and lets go one who has let go, one who, whose heart is unattached. There's no need for them to think, may I realize the, uh, uh, may I experience the knowledge and, and vision of liberation because it's natural for one who has let go to, for no, the knowledge and vision of liberation to arise. So QED. Yeah, QED. <laughs> so in, in describing morality to a Vipassana meditator in the, a modern mindfulness meditator, had we explored trying to present it as a skillful means? Yes. And yes. they still say they don't want to do it? Or what? Seems uh, strange. It's, a, it's an ongoing dialogue, uh, uh, but for the, the interest of people who are gathered, part of it is to do with the way uh, therapy works in the Western world, that a therapist, uh, and I, I've, uh, I've had some helpful feedback on this recently, uh, largely speaking, a therapist is not allowed to make comments about the lifestyle of their client. So that if you're a bank robber, you know, the, the therapist can't say, your anxiety problems would be alleviated if you stopped robbing <laughs> banks. It's like, like in the, in the Sopranos, Tony Soprano was a, was a mafioso, but had a profound relationship with his therapist. <laughs> I don't know if that, I never watched it, but, uh, but uh, not that most people are uh, anywhere near being a mafioso, but uh, the therapy model is that it's not the therapist's role to make judgments about your personal choices. And that, that's a clear line uh, that they're not supposed to cross, or they can lose their license if they cross it. Uh, hopefully it's changing, and I had a helpful dialogue with a, an American psychologist recently who sent me quite a bit of information that um, was very useful. And it's, as I think, movement in that direction, but my, my hope, my wish under the Bodhi tree <laughs> uh, is that slowly but surely the, the natural connection between behaving in an honest, kind, uh, gentle and uh, harmless way uh, 
the, the natural positive beneficial effects of that on, on our lives will become apparent without the idea of it being sort of scolded by some authority figure like thou shalt not but rather why do I want to do that to myself mm. yeah. why, why would I want to put my, you know, my hand into the, uh, into the gears and get mashed up it's like why would I want to do that and so I, hopefully steadily people can bring sila into the picture and, and recognize that it's a uh, say it's not an imposition it's not a a, a, um, a limitation but rather it's a freedom that maybe the last teaching to share this evening because I think we're running we're running up to the last minute so uh, one of the ways that the Buddha speaks about the five precepts and we tend to think of precepts or, or rules as like don't do this don't do that like no 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 but there's a, a particular sutta called the Streams of Merit, where the, the Buddha says, um, uh, one who, uh, who takes on the precept of refraining from killing living beings, in doing that, they, they give the gift of fearlessness to un, uh, immeasurable, uh, the freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from anxiety, to innumerable other living beings, and they that grant to themselves immeasurable freedom from fear, freedom from distress, freedom from anxiety uh, in themselves. Well, if you ref uh, one who ref uh, refrains from taking what is not given, one who refrains from sexual misconduct, one who refrains from lying, one who refrains from intoxicants, they give the gift of fearlessness. And so these are called the Mahadana, the great gifts. Uh, and they say these are respected and loved and, and revered from ancient times. So we don't really think of the precepts as a gift, but it, it, you're giving fearlessness. It's called abhayadana. So this morning at the Anamodana, the, the meal offering, I spoke about dana. Uh, so above every kind of material giving, uh, there is, uh, which is called amisadana. The next level of giving is abhayadana. And so I mean, if you walk around and say, I'm really a gift to you, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm a gift to the world, you know, you should, you, you know, you're allowed to adore me, I'm a gift to the world. Then that's the, uh, the self-view getting in the way. <laughs> but uh, if we see that if we are uh, harmless, if we are uh, uh, restrained and respectful of people's property, if we are respectful of, of sexual relations and commitments and uh, uh, the social standards around sexual behavior, if we, we don't tell lies, we don't use intoxicants, then w people like to be around us. People draw close. When you come into the room, people don't hide their handbag under the chair. You know. Or like, shy, oh no, it's her again. Yeah. But, uh, they, um, they know that you're not going to try and get anything from them. You're not going to harm them. You're not going to abuse them. You're not trying to take advantage of them. Um, and so... You give a payadana. It's a gift of fearlessness. People can relax around you, and so uh, that uh, uh, see, seeing the precepts as a, a gift to yourself and to others is a different way than just a lot of no, 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 don't, 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 don't. So I think uh, as the evening is cooling off and people are drifting away, it's probably time to formally bring things to a close.